What a pastoral song that is, not by might, not by power, but by your spirit, says the Lord. Um, I need that, I need that. Isaiah 51 says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness. Listen to me, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn. Look to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion. The Lord comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord, joy and gladness, will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. Isaiah 51, 1 through 3. Every Sunday, church family, is our corporate act of seeking the God in whom we live and move and have our being. We seek Him who made from one couple, Abraham and Sarah, an entire nation, and we seek Him who comforts us in all of our waste places. We seek Him who can transform deserts into gardens. And we seek Him who turns grief into joy and gladness. We seek Him with thanksgiving and song. Amen? Right now, as we are worshiping, uh, we have brothers and sisters in Christ suffering, suffering in Uvalde, suffering in Buffalo, suffering in Santa Ana. Worldwide, our brothers and sisters in Christ who suffer, they are seeking the Lord. We're not alone. We're not alone. Sufferers, in Christ, gather in worship to seek the Lord. And I want to pray right now. I want to pray that we will find rest and comfort as we situate our lives upon the immovable rock of Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Oh Lord, oh Lord, with the psalmist we cry, why have you forgotten us? Why do we go on suffering because of the oppression of evil? God, wake up. Why are you sleeping? Oh Lord, rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. We weary of the wickedness in this world. And we weary of the wickedness in our own hearts. God, we are weary. Please help us. Please comfort us, Lord. Comfort the grieving. Give strength to the suffering. Show us a sign of your favor. Teach us in our suffering that you alone are our rock. Preserve our life. Preserve our nation. 
We are grateful for those who have suffered in the uniform to save the innocent. And we resolve to trust you, O Lord, because you are our rock, and great is your steadfast love, and there is no one like you. We seek and we believe that you will give us joy and gladness, for they can only be found in you. Because of you, we will give thanksgiving, and because of you, we will raise our voice in song. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And the church said, Amen. Amen. The suffering body, it's never senseless. That's the tag I want to put on our message this morning, church family. We are in a series on the body, on human embodiment, and we've been talking about various aspects of living in a physical body. And this morning, we will consider the suffering body. Now, a few years ago, uh, Dr. Matthew Kim, who is a preaching and ministry professor at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, spoke here at this pulpit on suffering. And he told about suffering through his brother's murder. He told about suffering his own self-health uh, challenges. And he talked about how his own suffering caused him to rely on God more and more. And Matthew has since written a book for pastors titled Preaching to People in Pain. Preaching to People in Pain. And Matt poses this question in chapter 1. He writes, Pastor, if you gave your congregation a choice between hearing a sermon on success versus a sermon on suffering, which do you think they would choose? Sermon on success versus sermon on suffering. I wondered about that. I did. I thought about that. I thought about us. I wondered about how you would respond to that question. And, and while I was wondering about that, Matt continued in the chapter. He said, Pastor... Which sermon would you rather preach? And while I'm not sure how you would respond to the question about what you would rather hear, I know which sermon I'd rather preach. I'd rather preach the one on success. It's more fun. It's more pleasurable. It's more positive. It's upbeat. And while that may be, I think it's more helpful to preach on suffering. And here's why. We read your prayer requests every week for our staff meetings, for our elders meetings. We read them. We pray about them. 85%. 85%. That, that's, I think that's a fair guesstimate. 85% are about suffering. Some, we celebrate with you and praise God for the successes. And please continue. 
Please continue. And yet, by and large, by and large, we intercede to the Lord, asking Him to give you comfort in your suffering. And here was what's on your mind this, this past week. Last week, you asked us to intercede because someone is suffering through a miscarriage. Someone else is suffering through a surgery of unknown nature. Someone is suffering grief over a suicide. Someone is suffering and is feeling emotionally burnt out. Someone is seeking spiritual freedom from mental illness. Someone else is suffering from depression. Someone is suffering with gender dysphoria. Someone has a grandchild who is pregnant and is considering an abortion. I mean, I could go on. Judging by our church's prayer requests, sermons on suffering would be more helpful. And I don't have to convince anyone in this room that all of us have, are, or will face some form of suffering in life. And what compounds the pain of suffering is the lack of preparation for it. So part of my responsibility as your pastor is to prepare you for the day of your suffering. A few weeks ago, suffering struck Buffalo. The day after, Buffalo was a church in California. Last week, it was Uvalde. Thus far, this year in Chicago, there have been 225 homicides. A third of them are under the age of 25, most all by gunfire. Suffering stems from sickness. Suffering stems from abuse. Suffering stems from a, a tornado or a hurricane or some other climate disaster. And some suffering is self-induced. And other suffering is for the sake of Christ. I want to prepare us for the day of our suffering so that when it comes, you will praise the Lord and bless the Lord and not curse the Lord. So if you have your Bibles, I would ask that you would turn to the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading verses 7 through 18. You'll find 2 Corinthians chapter 4 in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians was Paul's letter to this church in Corinth. And in verses 7 through 18, we hear how Paul interprets his own personal suffering. Now, all that can be said about suffering will not be said in this sermon. But in this sermon, as we look at these verses, I want us to hear how Paul understands his own suffering, how he interprets his own personal suffering. And so in these verses that we read, we're going to see that, that Paul understands what suffering can do. What is suffering doing to Paul? Paul tells us. And then we're going to see and understand, according to Paul, what suffering doesn't do to him, what it can't do to him. And then thirdly, we'll see what it promises to do, what suffering is doing to Paul, what suffering can never do to Paul, and what suffering promises to do to Paul. I want you to be listening for those themes as I'm reading 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 18. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to the death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke, we also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Do you, can you hear Paul's heart? You hear him talk about what suffering can do to our bodies? Then can you hear him talk about what suffering can't do to our bodies? And then what suffering promises to do? Well, let's just walk through each of those sections, beginning with what is suffering doing to Paul. You see it? It's in verses 7 through 11. What is suffering doing to Paul? It's easy. It's killing him. That's what it's doing. It's killing him. In verse 7, when Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, he's talking about his own body, his own physical body. Uh, and so in the ancient world, in the marketplace, you could go and you could just purchase inexpensive earthenware made of cheap clay. According to one scholar, clay jars were the throwaway containers of the ancient world so that their lifespans were generally only a few years and uh, they were used to store and transport water and um, olive oil, wine, grain, even family treasures. Earthenware jars were an anonymous part of everyday living, and they were used for cooking and eating and drinking and storing leftovers. That's how Paul describes his own physical body. It, it's not that he's denying that he matters to God or that he's an image bearer of the Almighty. That's not it at all. He's simply acknowledging the frailty of the physical human body. It's as frail as clay at the marketplace. Jars of clay. That got me thinking about my own body. My own body. And uh, 
I have a list from, from toe to head. Let's start at the toe. Let's start at the toe. Let's start at my big toe. Anybody here had gout? Gout? I hope not. I hope not. Oh, my goodness. You can't even put a bed sheet on it. I mean, it's just, it gets swollen, and, and, and so, and I, I struggle with gout. I eat the wrong food, and the toe just blows up. And it's incredibly painful, and uh, my last attack, I thought I was going to have to need a stool last Sunday to sit on and preach, because the attack happened a week ago Thursday. Of all places, I was getting my physical. And just as I was getting ready to go, I noticed my toe. Is this, is this looking? Is it, is, it, is it looking okay as well? Is it warm as well? Uh, not yet. By the time I got home, 15 minutes later, that thing was red. It was hot red. And so thank you, Lord, for colchicine. That's the drug. And my goodness, uh, that's just gout. That's gout. So, and then I have, uh, going on up uh, the body here, I, let's just stop at my heel. Uh, plantar fasciitis? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I have flat feet. But things that um, you are hearing from your preacher about his body that you really would rather not, but I've got flat feet, so I have to wear orthotic inserts or I will have this incredible pain. What's worse than gout? Plantar fasciitis? I mean, and then the, I've, I've had, had knee issues. I couldn't stop running after 40, which was 20 years ago. And now I walk and I ride my bike, but uh, my knees uh, creak, and I've talked to you about my cancer. And then, and then uh, here, up here, I've got, I've, I've got, you see this? You see my, you see my pinky here? Uh, some of you have, have noticed this. You've actually noticed this, and you draw this to my attention. What did you get out of the sermon, Pastor? I noticed your pinky finger, your right pinky finger. It's crooked. You see that? You see that on the camera here? Do a zoom up. It, it's, 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 it's crooked. Why is it crooked? I don't know. But, uh, but I went to uh, a physician's assistant, and they took an x-ray, and it cost $1,000. And the answer is, well, we really don't know. $1,000 for, we don't know. And uh, there's, a, there's a little lump here. It's not a bone. It's just skin. And I said, well, how can we straighten this out? I said, well, we can give you a splint. Well, what will happen if you take the splint off? It'll just go back to crooked. Oh, $1,000. Here you go. And, uh, and then, um, and then I've, I've got glaucoma. And so every evening, I've got to put a drop in each eye or I, I, or I risk going blind. And, um, and, then, and then with my sight, I still need to wear glasses because I have astigmatism. And so, and that requires bifocals. Thank you, Benjamin Franklin. So, and, and also my, my shoulder creaks a little bit because, as you know, about a year and a half ago, I was riding my bicycle. I flipped over the handlebars and my shoulder crashed into the concrete sidewalk. And when that happens, the sidewalk always wins. All right? So, now here's the deal. Nobody has been persecuting me. That's just life. That's just life. And in verse 16, Paul says, the outer man is wasting away, decaying. His physical body is breaking down. Paul's eyesight isn't what it used to be, and he has no optometrist. 
He has a hard time hearing like he used to. He isn't bouncing back like he used to. He walks all day to the next town with no orthotics. The next morning, his body is stiff. His wounds take longer to heal. That's just normal life for the apostle. And then there are the sufferings for Christ, verses 8 and 9. He says we are afflicted in every way. Afflicted means to be constricted. To me, it means to be jammed in a narrow space. In one extra biblical reference, the word was used to describe someone stuck in a tight space that's full of snakes. Afflicted. We are perplexed, verse 8. Confused. Paul says, at times, my suffering bewilders me. It leaves me with many questions. And he's an apostle. In verse 9, he says, we are persecuted. Literally, we are pursued. We are hunted down. Paul, who was once a Christian killer, is now a wanted man. Verse 9 says, we are knocked down. That is, to be punched with such force that you can't stay on your feet. These are body blows. Headshots, kidney shots that Paul is getting. Paul is an innocent sufferer. His affliction, perplexity, and persecution stem from his commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ in a sin-soaked world. And Jesus promised him such. He said in Acts chapter 9, verse 16, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Acts 9, 16. And Paul communicated this very message to the churches that he planted. He said in Acts 14, 22, to the churches in Lystra and Iconium, he said, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. How is that for a church planting strategy? To to gather a church together, to plant a church, and to say, oh, by the way, through much suffering, we will enter the kingdom of God. Anybody want to sign up for that? Welcome to Windsor Road. But that's the truth. That's the truth. And the apostle Peter concurs, which is why he says in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes to test you as though something strange were happening to you but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed we live in a sinful broken fallen world and because of that we suffer and if you do not believe in the tragedy and universality of evil then Christianity will make no sense to you whatsoever you will think that humans have the power to fix humans and so you will put your hope in education and politics and philosophy and psychology and the economy and medicine and so on and don't misunderstand me I'm wearing my orthotics every day I'm going to take my medicine every day but, but don't misunderstand. Each of these things have their benefits, but they make lousy saviors. And they cannot rescue us from sin's darkness, deceit, destruction, and death. The cry of every sufferer in this sin-scarred world is actually a cry for God's redeeming 
Rescuing, restoring grace. That's why pastor and author Paul David Tripp wrote, the doctrine of sin says that the hope of humanity will never be delivered by humanity. It will come only by means of God's intervening grace. And that is a truth that really is a dividing line. If you believe it, it will fundamentally change the way you view yourself and your thinking and the meaning and purpose of your life, and it will, it will change your view of right and wrong. It will change your thinking about what's true and false. It will change your perspective uh, about where you look for comfort and strength and what's important to you and what is not, and, and where true, sturdy, resilient, lasting hope can be found. If sin is the ultimate cancer then there's no cure to be found outside the intervening mercies of Jesus' redeeming grace. If sin is the problem, God is our only hope. And not even the Apostle Paul was exempt from the curse of sin. And he says so. My clay body has been jammed inside a snake-infested space. My clay brain is buzzing with baffling questions. My clay legs can't outrun the hounds that hunt me. My clay face keeps getting hit, which sends me to the mat. Paul says, I'm clay. I'm clay. But don't think for one minute I've lost hope. I may be stuck with the snakes, but I can still preach the snakes. I may be baffled, but I'm not at my wit's end. I may be hunted, but I'm not abandoned. And I may be down, but I am not out. For in Paul's clay body resides the glorious treasure of purposeful gospel truth. You see the contrast he's making here in this section? Clay and treasure, frailty and power, that which belongs to God and that which belongs to us. The reason we need never lose hope is that our suffering is never senseless. It has a purpose. That's why Paul says in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to the death of Jesus. Uh, let me give you some grammar here in verse 11. To the death of Jesus is literally to the dying of Jesus. It's a process. Paul says crucifixion is a slow death. And Paul says I'm giving over to this, to this crucifixion dying Jesus in my life. That's what's happening. And Paul says we who live are always being given over. We are being given over. You see that phrase? We're being given over. What voice is that, English teachers? Passive voice. We're being given over. It's, it's, it's called the divine passive, meaning it is purposeful. Paul's suffering is not happenstance. Paul's entire life is a reenactment of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, Christ's suffering and Christ's glory. For Paul, evil is real, and evil does not have the last word. 
And this shows up throughout the Bible. I'm thinking of Genesis chapter uh, 50, verse 20, when Joseph met with his brothers. His life, which you can read about in, say, Genesis 40 through 50, is it's a life of suffering that led to glory. And his brothers kidnapped him and sold him as a slave to Egypt and then lied to their father about it. And, and later, <laughs> Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt. And here's Joseph's interpretation of the suffering and the glory. Here it is, Genesis 50, 20. He says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, for the saving of many lives. And what that doesn't mean is that the brothers did something to Joseph and God said to himself, okay, uh uh-oh, all right, how how am I going to work this out? That's not what that means. It means that God's sovereignty is such that not even evil can prevail against his purposes. God does not personally perform acts of evil. God's intentions for evil overrule man's intentions for evil because God's intentions are for our salvation. And just as Joseph's sufferings led to the salvation of his family, Paul says, through the cracked clay frail vessel that consists of my life is beaming forth the glory of gospel truth for the benefit of others it's a, it's a truth that informs me that i was never unbreakable in the first place it's a truth that informs me that i was never made to be independently strong it's a truth that informs me that i am created fragile so that God would achieve something good through my fragility. God made us clay to teach us that power can never come from us, but can only be found in Him. That's what Paul says. And of course then, that leads us to what suffering will never do. Paul says, well look, here's what suffering can do. I mean, it can take away my, it can take away my physical life, even though my inner life is being renewed. That's why Paul says, here's what suffering can't do. It will not cause me to quit. That's verses 13 through 15. In these verses, Paul quotes from Psalm 116. And he just has a small, small phrase from Psalm 116. It's as if I give you a phrase and you're so familiar with that psalm. Oh, yeah, you know exactly what Paul's talking about and Psalm 116 is about a sufferer who praises God for being rescued by God from a life-threatening affliction and so Paul says in verse 13 since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written I believed and so I spoke Paul says we also believe and we also speak The same spirit of faith. You see that? The same spirit of faith. We have the same spirit of faith, meaning I'm not the only one who's going through my particular suffering. I'm not alone. I'm not the first to suffer. I'm not the first to face hardship, and I won't be the last. I'm not the first to experience failure, and I won't be the last. By endurance, through Christ, Paul says, I will show that I am in league with other fellow sufferers who did not quit. 
Psalm 116 is about a sufferer who found the Lord so trustworthy that sufferer did not quit because where else am I going to go? Who else can I turn to? Paul says, I may be stuck in the small spaces with the snakes, but I can still preach to snakes. And Paul stakes his life and his hope and his identity and his future on the empty tomb. I, I will put my suffering in the shadow of the empty tomb. There is no good news without the empty tomb. There is no hope without the empty tomb. There is no good reason to suffer without the empty tomb. There's no moral ground for life without the empty tomb. If only for this life, Paul says it, he puts all of his cards out on the table. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied most of all people. Paul always goes back to the historical fact of the bodily resurrection of Christ. Paul says, Christ is risen. I saw him. I heard him. He has changed me. And just as Christ was pressed and bewildered and persecuted and knocked down, still death could not hold him. He got up. And he gets us up. So you see verse 14? So Jesus is risen, but but Christianity is not merely Jesus is risen. That's a historical fact. Yes, but gospel news is this. Jesus is risen, and in him you too will rise. That's why Paul later says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, that's why he says, for the sake of Christ then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong I mean who says that Paul says I, I trust Christ so much he is my rock but 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 listen please do not misinterpret this Paul is not saying that in our weakness God will pour his power into us so that we will suddenly become powerful so, 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 so the equation is not my weakness plus God's power equals my power. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, he teaches us that as we embrace our weakness, Jesus' own power is manifested through us in our weakness. In other words, we do not become powerful when God's power flows through our weakness. Instead, we remain weak. We stay weak. We do not grow in power. We grow in weakness. We go from weakness to weakness, ever weak ourselves, yet displaying Christ's ever-growing glory and power. And you say, well, why does it have to be through, listen to me, this is how, so that the glory would go to God and not to us. Which is why when the Apostle Paul appeared before the sophisticated urban Corinthians, he got up and he looked like the most pathetic person you'd ever seen in your life. Pathetic and weak and unsightly and unseemly. He just looked like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And then he opened his mouth, and heaven fell, and lives were changed. 
And we're here talking about it 2,000 years later. That is the power of God. And it's an equation that says my weakness plus God's power equals God's power. And it's all for the sake of others, you see. Verse 15, for it is all for your sake. For it is all for your sake. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, he says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. I've been adrift on frequent journeys. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, in danger from my own people, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil, hardship, many a sleepless night, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and exposure and apart from that i worry about the churches but it's in that weakness that christ's power is exalted and it's always for the sake of others so could it be that someone may see that kind of weakness and suffering and and looked at god that's what paul is saying that's what happens to the glory of God. And that's why he won't quit. Suffering is killing Paul, but suffering can't make Paul quit because Paul sees God's power at work in his own weakness. And the result of this grace is that more and more people are coming to Christ, giving more and more thanksgiving to the glory of God. And that takes us to this third section where Paul tells us what, what suffering promises to do. And, and let me just, here it is. Suffering promises to achieve an eternal weight of glory. Verse 16. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing that word means effecting achieving producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are transient for the things that are unseen are eternal is that possible is it really possible does Paul know something we don't know? Is it possible in the midst of my cancer, in the midst of mass murder, in the midst of atrocities of war, murdered children, heart-wrenching disabilities, is it possible that our future with Christ be so beautiful and spectacular that we will forget all the depravity? Is it true? Is it true that God's brilliant and profound glory has such a gravitational pull that the trials of this present suffering float away by comparison? Is it, is it true that the glory keeps getting better and better and better? Is it? Paul says, yes. Yes, and, and listen to me. He's not saying that the present trials are insignificant or unpainful 
or unreal. Instead, he is situating today's sufferings on eternity's scale, weighing them against future glory. And his conclusion is that compared to our future glory in Christ, the suffering millstone around his neck is feather-like. How is that possible? And we go back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection of Christ, the historical fact of the empty tomb, Christ's resurrection, then ours. Do you believe the promises of Christ? We don't lose heart because today's sufferings pale before our promised heavy glory in Christ. Today's sufferings are achieving, affecting, producing future heavy glory in Christ. That's why Paul says in Romans 8:18, "For I consider I consider that means I've thought this through. I've done the math. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. How is that possible? Because I saw a man get up from the grave. And he's alive. And he lives today. Christ's heavy glory outweighs our heavy grief. And there it is. That's our big idea. That's it. Never lose heart, church family. For Christ's heavy glory outweighs our heavy grief. It does. It's a promise. And this promise must be renewed, verse 16, day by day. Day by day. Meaning you can't go to enough retreats or conferences or take seminary classes to keep your hearts full of hope. One sermon can't fill you with enough hope to make it through the rest of your life, let alone the rest of your week. Every day we need renewing. Every day. It's manna every day. There are no spiritual booster shots that last for a decade. No meal designed by God that will satisfy you for a year. We need day-by-day feeding. The mercies of God are new every morning, every day, day by day. God gives us new mercies. He never gives day-old mercies. you got to take today's mercies. You need today's mercies. Christ's heavy glory outweighs our heavy grief. That is something that we need to feed on. New dosage to relieve today's pain. New gas to drive today's car. New food for the day's spiritual metabolism every day. He saves us Day by day, he saves us through 10,000 little meals, 10,000 sermons, 10,000 scripture readings, 10,000 spiritual conversations with your brothers and sisters in Christ, 10,000 worship services, 10,000 prayers. And why? Because he's the treasure and we're the clay. And our strength rests not in ourselves, it rests in him. Christ's heavy Glory outweighs our heavy grief. And that is why we need never lose 